0: Want to stand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Get her iconic Descent collar in the form of a pin, necklace, or earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of profits to causes you love, like the Bronx Freedom Fund and Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off today with code HARPERS at descentpins.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, private businesses descended upon New Orleans in order to rebuild the city, which more often than not took the form of profiteering and privatizing formerly public services. One of the most significant and detrimental areas of that changeover has been in New Orleans' schools. Though the charter school debate can't be reduced to only good or only bad, in the November issue, Andrea Gabor explores how the all-charter school system in New Orleans has consistently failed kids, particularly those who face the greatest amounts of structural discrimination. I spoke with Gabor about the development of the charter school movement, what pro-charter Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos has done on a national scale to education, and what ways educators have been fighting against charterization. So can you discuss what the charter movement is now versus what it was when it started? Because this is, as you describe in the article, this was something that sort of began in the fifties, sixties, as part of like this
1: other big philanthropy movement. Right. So the charter movement itself didn't actually begin that early. So first there was the voucher movement, Mm. which was an effort by a number of right wingers, uh, free marketeers to completely get rid of government in education. And when that didn't work, they began focusing on charter schools. Uh, but the, but the original idea for charters, the kind of animating idea, really came from educators. Mm-hmm. Um, Debbie Meyer was actually very. Myers was very influential. We think of her as an as a small school innovator, but in many ways there was something sort of charter like about those autonomous public schools that she started. But it was Al Shanker, you know, the renowned union leader. Who seized on this idea of semi autonomous schools started by teachers and parents as a way to innovate in public education? And the idea was that they would be, you know, they could develop a new school, they would be free of most government and union regulations so that they would have a freer hand, but it was based on this very collaborative, again, teacher driven model. Well, fast forward, and that idea is completely hijacked by the ed reformers, okay? Mm -hmm. So what we have now is a system in which the dominant model are so-called charter management organizations, which are essentially large networks with hundreds of schools, run in many cases by national organizations such as KIPP. What does KIPP stand for? Um, Knowledge is power. Again, a very kind of (laughs) almost new agey idea. Anyway, so so these large charter management organizations, the vast majority of whom are Mm non-union, okay? They are closely allied with Teach for America. In fact, the founder of Teach for America is married to the CEO of KIPP. And Teach for America, of course, has developed a model for bringing... Cheap, young, very lightly trained educators into schools, mostly charter schools, on a short-term basis. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of you know, the replaceable parts in the machine model of uh, of education. Temp labor. Temp labor. But, but it's for children who it, are trying to learn. Temp labor <laughs> for children, exactly. And in a institution where, you know. Teachers should be professionals, okay? Mm-hmm. And where teaching, you know, especially in the most challenging env- environments, requires incredible uh, knowledge and experience. And this whole movement has basically eviscerated the value that we've attached to experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned that this was originally uh, motivated by empowering teachers more. But also getting rid of some union restrictions. Can you discuss the role of unions in the charter school movement and what sort of rights do teachers in public schools have versus those in non unionized charters?
1: Well, you know, this gets a little bit arcane, but, you know, even in New York City, um, you have you know a rule where I think it's something like if 70% of the teachers in your school agree, you can have um, you know essentially a thin contract. Mm-hmm. So it's a much more flexible contract, right? So there are, in fact, some unionized uh, charter schools. Um, they tend to be the independent charter schools that are not part of CMOs they are the ones who struggle for funding. They're not the ones who are being showered with money uh, by big philanthropy. And there, you actually do see teachers much more involved in the improvement effort, okay? And they, those kinds of charters are much more like the original ideal that Al Shanker uh, envisioned.
0: Mm-hmm. You quote one parent whose daughter had attended a uniquely inclusive and high-functioning charter school that was shut down due to lack of funding as saying that the charter school model, quote, frames choice very narrowly. Um, could you unpack that and what and exactly what is the choice in the school choice movement?
1: Well, and of course, the, the example that you're referencing is... Uh, in New Orleans, which really is kind of ground zero for this effort to completely replace, there is not a single public school, traditional public school left in New Orleans. It has been completely charterized. So it's a great example for for where this is all going. So Mm -hmm. what do you have in New Orleans? It is a system dominated again by these CMOs, mostly non-union. And so what choice do parents actually have? Well, in theory, they can enter a lottery, enter their child in a lottery, which is typically the way that you apply for a charter school. But the reality is that in the most desirable schools, it's very hard to get in off the lottery, right? And there are actually ways of gaming the system. And the schools have an incentive, which we can talk about in a moment, for gaming the system. So, you know, the poorest, least sophisticated parents will often have the hardest time getting into the most desirable schools. Well, once you've entered the lottery, that's it as far as parental choice is concerned. And in fact, one of the interesting things about New Orleans is that precisely because it pioneered a charter model that was based on a no excuses approach to education. No excuses is this very strict discipline approach mm-hmm. um, in which schools actually resemble penal colonies more than they do schools. You had and still have kids who have to walk along straight lines, sit in silence during lunch, the slightest infraction, you know, wearing brown socks instead of black socks and their uniforms they can be suspended you know they their body posture has to be a certain way their pencils aligned and i mean it's it's absolutely mind-boggling and incidentally of course it's the kind of education that most of the philanthropists who are funding this would never subject their own children to right of course not yeah and so once your kid is in that system there's nothing the parent has absolutely no choice and in fact you know, one, one of the metaphors I used in, in my book, which, which uh, I just have a new book out after the education wars, is that it was really sort of a Henry Ford's dictum, you can have any color car as long as it's black. So in New Orleans, you can have, you, now there are a few changes, you could have any kind of school as long as it was a no excuses school. So again, you have to abide by these rules and very little choice. Effectively, there are no school boards in the system. So Mm -hmm. there's no way for parents or community members to become active. Now, I I, I do need to mention that in New Orleans, they have nominally returned control uh, just in the last two years to the school board. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we've seen, and especially with the example of the school that you just mentioned, which was just closed down, that The school board has very little um, actual power. And I think another important thing to mention is that this whole notion of taking over state takeovers of school districts, disempowering school boards, is, is a tactic mostly led by Republican governors against school districts where the majority of children and families are black. Okay, so you have school districts in this country that are not very high functioning, that are mostly white, and this doesn't tend to happen to them. And a Rutgers political scientist by the name of Domingo Morel has actually really quite brilliantly uh, researched this.
0: Yeah, I mean, what you were describing earlier with the zero tolerance policy and the the extent of bodily control, you know, you do see like a a school to prison pipeline like there is very it's very clear what these kids are being prepared for it's not it's not uh thinking it's not constructive thinking creative thinking right. critical thinking it's you walk on this line you behave and if you challenge anybody you yeah it's it's right. it, it's a, and
1: you know yeah. i i i do want to emphasize that i do believe that in new orleans The majority of people who got on this charter school bandwagon, I mean, keep in mind, New Orleans and Louisiana generally were at the bottom of the barrel in terms of school performance, right? Mm -hmm. I think they really wanted something better for their kids, okay? I do believe that there were initially good intentions. But at this point, we have so much evidence for the harm that this does to communities, for the harm that the test prep culture, and we can get into why the kind of marriage of big philanthropy, charter management organizations has helped perpetuate the test prep culture. We've seen the damage this has done. And so the more that ed reformers stick to this charters at all cost strategy, the less you can believe in the good intentions. Because the reality is that there's, we found that there's a tipping point. In, in, in districts that are not all charter, there is a tipping point. We've seen it in New York, we've seen it in Oakland, California, um, we've seen it in Los Angeles. When you have a large enough number of charter schools in a district, and we can debate what that tipping point is, you turn the existing public schools into a dumping ground for the hardest to teach kids. So you have a school environment in which we've seen funding eviscerated for traditional public schools. The majority of states are still funding schools at levels below what they were funding them before the financial crisis in 2008. You then have a system where you have charter schools which attract the easiest to teach kids. That turns the neighboring traditional public school into a dumping ground, less funding. And you you have really set up these schools for failure. And just
0: two questions about how charters are set up because I'm it, the the idea of a lottery. Where did that come from, and is that part of this sort of faux democratic, like oh, and anybody can be a part of this?
1: Right. Well, I mean, the idea of a lottery. Um... Is is fairness, right? That mm-hmm. any body can apply to a school, and if you have more applicants than you have seats, then you pick your your you select your students by lottery. The reality is that, and Success Academy is a great example of this. They go to great lengths to select or or to discourage families who do not fit their model from applying. So you know, they may initially have a large number of kids entering or families entering kids into their lottery, but actually a lot of those families fall away because they Mm -hmm. want a very certain kind of family that is going to um, really abide by the Success Academy rules. And another
0: thing about the way in which charters operate or sort of a, a key component of it is the hours, the school hours are much, much longer than a traditional public school. And again, just out of, you know, where did that idea come from? And is that an attempt to sort of sell them to a certain type of parent or why? Because it seems detrimental to just have children constantly trying to pay attention for like
1: 11 hours or, you know, nine hours of school or whatever it might be. Well, I mean, it comes from... From a conviction, and in many communities, it's true that kids are behind academically, and therefore they need, you know, lots of extra time to have information poured into their heads. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm putting that a little bit crudely, but you know, not everything charters do is bad, and in mm-hmm. fact, you know, during the Bloomberg era here in New York City, and you know, Bloomberg has rightly been criticized for a lot of reasons, but you know, one of the things that he did, one of the best things he did was he gave traditional public school teachers a lot more autonomy and control over their budgets. Of course, there was a trade-off. They had to produce test scores um, and, uh, you know show improvement for the kind of poorest and neediest kids. But some of those schools, those traditional public schools, actually borrowed ideas from the charter movement, and one of them was the extended school day. Now, the extended school day does not have to be constantly pouring, information into kids' heads. It can also be sports. It can be enrichment, uh, you know, whether it's arts or technology or whatever. And so you know, that's a great example of an idea that probably makes sense, especially for working parents who don't have access to a lot of childcare. How it's actually done is, of course, important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about the portfolio model which is, again, inserting this market idea into a situation where it is completely, it, it is not applicable, and it definitely is damaging. So what problems arise when standardized test scores become so crucial to a school's survival,
1: and and what do those scores miss? So test scores are an incredibly crude instrument. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one thing that we know about test scores is that they track income and zip codes, they don't track intellectual ability and um, and learning. So we're using test scores to effectively say to teachers, you know, you're in charge of mitigating every problem that a poor kid comes into school with, whether that's hunger, homelessness, instability at home, you name it, right? Because the schools that are labeled as failing based on their test scores are, for the most part, schools with really poor kids, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's also driven a test prep culture where you've squeezed out non-tested subjects out of the curriculum or just marginalized them. Among them civics, okay? And mm-hmm. we're now we're now paying the price to some extent of this lack of of focus on civics. So test scores very importantly for the charter industry but it's seeped into the traditional public school arena as well via both bush and obama era policies mm-hmm. no child left behind race to the top etc they're a proxy for profitability and they perpetuate the fallacy that schools can be run like businesses and you know one of the things that i uh, what the, really the premise for this new book i wrote after the education wars is that ed reformers have borrowed all of the wrong lessons from the business world. They've borrowed this top-down, carrot and stick, command and control punitive approach to schools and teachers. And, you know, schools have to do so much more than just produce test scores. They have to nurture emotionally resilient kids. They need to cultivate proactive citizens for a democracy. You know, one of the things I often think about is, you know, think about those Parkland kids and their advocacy against gun violence and for uh, common sense gun legislation. You would never be able to predict based on their test scores, what they are doing, okay? Those kids were educated to become citizens, active citizens, and that's Mm -hmm. really what education needs to do, and it's not that we should never test kids, right? But testing has become the tail that wags the dog. Schools exist for a public good,
0: and that's all of what you're saying right now, and businesses only reward private interest. Like, right. it's, it's just this fundamental conflict that's never going to work.
1: But, you know, there's an irony here as well, which mm. is that once upon a time, um, you know, in the lead up to World War Two, public companies understood that they had to be responsible for more than just the bottom line. They understood that, you know, during the Depression, that they had to be somewhat responsible for their employees, for their communities, etc. And it's what prevented the United States from slipping into fascism, right? Mm -hmm. But during the last 30 or 40 years, shareholder value has been king. And that is the, the really kind of corrosive version of capitalism that has been applied to 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 uh, the whole ed reform effort. And let's, you
0: don't mention her too much in the piece, but we have to talk about Betsy DeVos, uh, who is evangelical, married to the guy who created Amway, which is definitely not an mm-hmm. evil company. And she's been a huge proponent of charter schools in Michigan, even though those schools are really some of the worst performing charters. So, can you talk about what she has done to sort of assist the school choice movement in
1: her current position? Sure. Well, for one thing, she's poured money into states for charter schools. I mean, most recently, uh, she's upped the amount of money, for example, in North Carolina to $35 million for charter schools. And this is in a state that has 100,000 kids in charter schools. So $35 for for 100,000 kids, that's a lot, and, mm-hmm. and she's doing that all over the country. But what she did in Michigan, I think, really is kind of most illustrative of not just her approach, but also the danger of big philanthropy. So 1993 was sort of a a pivotal year. It's when a lot of states developed ed reform strategies. It grows out of the publication of A Nation at Risk under President Reagan, which, in retrospect, exaggerated the problems in schools. In any case, by 1993, several states developed ed reform legislation. Two of them, two of these states, are Massachusetts and Michigan. And I document this in in my book, After the Education Wars. And Massachusetts downplays charter schools. It's all about public school improvement. They place a strict cap on charters and what happens in Massachusetts, it becomes the gold standard for American education. Michigan, by contrast, aided and abetted by the Devosis who pour loads of money into the state legislature, lobby like crazy for charter schools. It is a wild west for charter schools, including for-profit charters, Multiple authorizers, and I'll explain in a minute what that, what the implications of that are, and Michigan goes from being above average in its NAEP scores. That's NAEP is the uh, is considered the nation's report card. Their scores are above the national average in 1993, to now they are way below the national average. Detroit's school situation is a complete mess, full of disastrous charter schools. And because they have multiple authorizers, if a charter is a disaster and they are not reauthorized by one of these entities, and by the way, that's the only form of oversight in many places is that every three to five years you have to go and apply for reauthorization, they can just shop for another authorizer. And all of this, starting in 1993 through today, all these efforts to clean up the Michigan charter situation have been foiled by the DeVosas. So it is really kind of emblematic. And, you know, another thing that that I think is really interesting is that just a couple of months ago in Florida, when Governor DeSantis rolled out yet another voucher plan that made the ability to pour money from the state – public education money from the state directly into private and religious schools. Um, DeSantis basically redefined education and said something to the effect that as long as it's government money, it's public education, even if it goes to private schools or religious schools. And Betsy DeVos immediately tweeted that she totally agreed. So there you have it. Yeah, well, speaking of her and
0: her incredible influence over the country and the Detroit school system, um, how have charters exerted influence who is in local government? Because in your article, you talk about Eli Broad of the Broad Foundation. And um, again, it seems like there's some real uh, inappropriate crossover or certain certain um, traditional boundaries between private and public, religious and public that are kind of being crossed here.
1: Right. So Eli Broad is one of the three philanthropists that I really focus on in the piece uh, because they are big philanthropy. It's the Gates Foundation, the Broad Foundation in California, and and the Walton Family Foundation uh, from Arkansas. And what they have done, and this is a really big and important shift away from the way philanthropy used to deal with education, because we've had philanthropy and education for decades. You know, the Annenbergs, for example, yes. they helped to fund educators who were trying new things, including uh, Debbie Myers, who we talked about a few moments ago. And today's big philanthropy have made a very conscious decision to become disruptors. And they are literally pooling their money to support organizations like KIPP, the, the the CMO, uh, the Charter Management Organization, and Teach for America and others that are undermining traditional public education. But they are going a step further. They are also funding, not necessarily the philanthropies themselves, but the philanthropists who are investing in, in the philanthropies, they are funding to the tune of millions and tens of millions of dollars um, school district races, okay? So in Los Angeles, you had a situation where where you had a couple years ago the most expensive school board race in the nation with Eli Broad um, and a number of other philanthropists, out-of-state philanthropists, Michael Bloomberg, all sorts of others, pouring money into school board races to defeat a single school board member. Uh, Same story in New Orleans, where you had huge amounts, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to elect a single board member. And you're seeing this being repeated all over the country. And you now have new philanthropic organizations. So, uh, you know, the big three are Gates, Walton, and Broad, and you have new philanthropic groups being created, for example, by the founder of Netflix, Reed Hastings, and a former Enron trader. And they are trying to take this portfolio model all over the country, literally to 30, 40 smaller cities around the country.
0: Hmm. And
1: that's another thing I document in in the article is how that portfolio model is now proliferating. So how do you explain their
0: mindset? of these, these philanthropists who are so forceful? I mean, are they just completely ignoring the evidence of what
1: is happening? Or, yeah, like, what is their, what's the game, I guess? Well, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that a lot of this happened initially before there was a lot of evidence, okay? So you mm. had this, you know, just on blind faith, this pouring in of both money and and brains into New Orleans, for example, right, on a theory that creating an all-charter district was going to be the winning model. And one of the things we saw was that initially, test scores appear to have increased. There's very little doubt about that, although there are other corollary problems, for example, a ballooning dropout rate, which the state of Louisiana has, has done its best to mask. But ever since a About 2016, the test scores have completely stagnated. And in fact, recently they've begun to decline. So now we're finally getting some evidence that at the very least, this charter movement is not a silver bullet. So are they going to pay attention? I'm not so sure, because I think one of the key drivers for this movement is an anti-union movement. Okay, Mm. that's incredibly important. And for many, perhaps not all philanthropists, the desire to get rid of government in as many public spheres as possible.
0: So what are ways that, you know, either public schools or, you know, not terrible charter schools trying to sort of pick up the pieces when it comes to students who are Special needs, or have some sort of learning disability. Like, are there positive developments being made, or is it kind of just doom and gloom at this point? Well, moment? all right.
1: So, so one of the districts that I actually documented in my book is a district in Texas, of all places, that is almost the size of New Orleans. It's it's called the Leander district, and they have actually um, adopted the continuous improvements philosophy Mm. of a man by the name of W. Edwards Deming, who's probably the leading, in my view, the leading management thinker of the 20th century. My first book was about Deming. In any event, they conducted the most remarkable 40-year effort at school improvement that I've seen anywhere in the country. Now, it's actually really interesting, like a super consistent strategy. I'm the first person who's really written about them. Uh, which, which is, in and of itself, remarkable. That here they are, nearly the size of New Orleans, and they their example has been completely ignored. So I think the the bottom line answer is that for any institution that matters, improvement, continuous improvement, is hugely important. We can't rest on our laurels. There are plenty of schools and school districts that need a lot of work, a lot of improvement. Uh, I would argue that. Everyone needs improvement, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's one important lesson that, you know, educators, administrators, you know, they really kind of have to focus constantly on moving the ball forward. Very interestingly, I've become fascinated with a district in Anaheim, California, in the backyard of um, of Disney World. Is it Disney World or Disneyland? Uh, I, I always get that confused. Um, anyway, it, it's a largely immigrant, poor community of Asian and Latino immigrants. And the superintendent in that district, who incidentally is also a big proponent of continuous improvement, has also come to the conclusion, and keep in mind that he is sandwiched between Los Angeles and San Diego, which are both Uh, very strong. Los Angeles has a huge number of charters, and um, San Diego, I think, has one of the fastest growing uh, charter sectors in the country. And he's come to the conclusion that aside from continuous improvement, what he has to do is really enlist his community of immigrant parents and families in both engaging with the schools, learning what the schools are doing, putting what he calls positive pressure on teachers and administrators to deliver for the kids. He's investing in civics education, not just for the kids but also for families. He's encouraging sort of civic activism, you know getting Anaheim schools to engage with local government and officials. And uh, you know he sees this partly as a strategy for you know keeping the charter movement at bay aside from people who are
0: doing phenomenal things to sort of fight this movement what are ways that failing charters could be held better to account than just having these you know sort of random companies that are like oh yeah sure you're you're fine you know so these cmo's that just say oh yeah you're you're doing well when actually they're failing
1: Well, you know, in California right now, you know, we have a a new governor, and it's actually the first governor who uh, has not been totally pro charter um, since I think the 1990s. Mm. And so they are actually passing a number of laws that are meant to provide better oversight. So, not allowing multiple authorizers, allowing uh, localities and, and states to audit charters. You know, transparency, sunshine is the best remedy, right, uh, when it comes to the public good. But these efforts are all gonna be really resisted because they're gonna be seen as encroaching on the autonomy of, uh, of charters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in New York, in New York City, uh, Success Academy, uh, which produces very high test scores, fought successfully uh, against a state audit at one point. So we have a
0: situation where, you know, you describe New Orleans, where there are no more public schools, that there are lots of children being left behind who have special needs, English language learners, et cetera. And there are other places where this is happening, where there is no more school choice. It's either a charter or a really bad public school. So how would you describe that challenge for someone in government to address it?
1: So one of the things that happen, that's happened, and Kansas City is a great example, and I mentioned that in, in, in the article, is that as charter proliferation has become a thing in this country, mm-hmm. there are a number of markets where you have arguably reached a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas City is one of them. Uh, there are some neighborhoods in New York, for example, as well, where there are so many charter schools in a given neighborhood that are creaming The easiest to teach kids, or the most engaged families, that you're turning the existing public schools into dumping grounds. And the best example of this, you know, back during the Bloomberg era, you know, lots of things you can criticize about Bloomberg, but one of the things he did was he produced his education department produced great data on poverty levels, uh, special needs, and English language language learners in schools. Every school had to publish this data. And so I looked at the data for East Harlem, and Harlem has the largest concentration of kids in charter schools. About a quarter of the kids in Harlem attend charter schools. And what I found was that the kids in traditional public schools in East Harlem were much poorer than their classmates at neighboring charter schools. And the traditional public schools had two to three times orders of magnitude more special needs kids and English language learners. And that has huge policy implications. So we can debate what is the tipping point, okay, at which you're seriously undermining traditional public schools simply by having so many nearby charter schools. Mm -hmm. You can debate what that point is. But that is a public policy challenge and it is not one that most charter school proponents or opponents have really addressed. So short of eliminating all charter schools, you have to address in a given community, you know, what is the largest percentage in a portfolio district of charter schools that you can have without destabilizing the traditional public schools? Well, thank you very much. Thank you, this has been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine Podcast. Produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org/save.